Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Christ Church. How are we? Good. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, if you are new or visitor, uh, my name is Matt. I'm part of the ministry staff here at Christ Church and not one of the two guys you normally see. For the rest of you, oh, you already know that. Uh, but super excited to get the opportunity to share this morning. Uh, if it puts your heart at ease a little bit, I am similar to Michael and Mark in a couple of ways. Uh, both Michael and I are St. Louis Cardinals fans, which means we've had tons of free time this fall to do other things, uh, like avoid Cubs fans uh, as best we can. And my, Mark and I, uh, we have a similar haircut. That's probably about the only thing we have in common, but uh, they are similar in that way. But we are, I'm excited to, to share this morning. Uh, before we dive in, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, that's where we're going to be, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> but I do want to take this opportunity to remind us that tonight begins our Advent season. And so uh, it's this evening in this room at 5 o'clock, we're going to gather as families and as the church family to begin to anticipate the arrival of Jesus in this Christmas season. And so five o'clock is Advent here. Uh, We'll do the Christmas Impact Experience over in the Student Ministry Center North at four o'clock before that. Luke chapter one, beginning in verse five, we're gonna dive into this uh, passage this morning as we look at the faithfulness of God and the story about uh, the arrival of John the Baptist And so we're going to look at this in in really three different perspectives, past, present, and future. Let's start with some of the stuff from the past, uh, kind of the setup, because we get just kind of dropped in the midst of a story here in Luke chapter 1 that's actually been transpiring for quite some time. And so beginning in verse 5, it says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Verse 7, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Kind of two narratives that we'll follow today as we move through this story. First is the bigger picture one that's about the nation of Israel. Uh, We can't necessarily have an appreciation for this, but when we start this story in Luke chapter 1... Uh, in our Bibles, we kind of get through the Old Testament and then we drop into the New Testament and we don't necessarily really see some of the connection between the two of those. But when we start in Luke chapter one right here, uh, there's actually a couple of things to note. One is that Israel is an occupied people. There's, Dr. Luke tells us that Herod is the ruler, that he's the king of Judah at that point. This is an occupied Israel. They're not sovereign. They're under Roman rule at this point. That would have mattered to some of the folks reading this at that time. And the other thing is that leading up to that, and this is just one of those things um, that is true from the Old Testament to the New Testament, is that God's been silent since the book of Malachi ended, and it's been about 400 years since God's spoken. This is the nation of Israel that's used to people like Moses and Abraham having a connection with God, their kings, David and Solomon, hearing from the Lord, their prophets coming and saying, this is what the Lord is going to do. And now for 400 years, there's been nothing but silence towards Israel. 
We're also put down in the beginning of this, or late in the journey of this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Both he and Elizabeth come from the same genealogy, the same line. We see that they come from kind of a humble background, but we're given two significant pieces that matter for our story today. First of all, they are blameless. Second of all, they are childless and very old. Why are those two put together? Why is there a connection? Why does this need to be said in verse six to kind of set up, here's who they are. Verse seven, here's their circumstance. There's a tendency back in Bible times that we probably still wrestle with ourselves. And sometimes it's to think that when there's something not as it should be in our life, it's a result of sin. There are certainly times where we pay the consequence for our actions, and there are times that we are punished because we have sinned and done wrong things. But in this case, Dr. Luke wants to make it really apparent they're childless, but they are also blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. There isn't a reason, there isn't a sin they've committed that's caused this to happen. And so if that's really the background, then we move back to the present time, to the beginning of the story in verse 8, and we read this. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Zechariah is a priest. At this point, there's probably about 32,000 of them. And so what happens is they work on a rotation where they serve at the temple for two weeks a year. Each division of priests would come and serve and offer incense and offer prayers at the temple. That's the background of this. And uh, it says that that Zechariah's name is pulled by lot. There's more folks, more priests that are there than can serve at one particular time. And so what happens is during your two-week rotation, you and all the other guys would get in a room and there'd be a name drawn that would get the opportunity to offer incense. And on this particular case, some can call it chance. I'll say it's just God's perfect timing. Zechariah's name is called His name is pulled out. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. You just do the math and figure out that uh, if if there's that many priests and you're only there for two weeks a year and one at a time names are drawn, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Something that would have caused him a great amount of fear. Uh, He would have begun to, to prepare for what he needed to say because there were some rules around it, not the least of which... Uh, is that uh, if you're familiar with some of the Old Testament law, if you do things incorrectly, there was the possibility uh, that you could die because of this, for doing things in the wrong order. That's a lot of pressure. Imagine if somebody had the opportunity to do something they don't normally do, like preach, once a year, and Mark calls and says, hey, are you free November 27th? Would you like to preach? Yeah. What, what is it? It's Luke chapter one. There's only one other piece of information. If it doesn't go right, you die. Ah, <laughs> uh, do it. Can I reconsider? Like, is there a backup plan? You know, is there not anyone else? So Zechariah's going to wrestle through this just a bit because there's some processes that need to happen. That's going to be relevant when we begin to look at the story of what happens. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Gabriel appears and says two things, doesn't he? First one is, don't be afraid. 
to which you can kind of imagine Zechariah's internal dialogue. It's easy for you to say, right? You're the angel in the room, right? You're the guy that just popped out of nowhere, and now here you are. He would have been rehearsing this already, you know, full of a little bit of fear, and here this is. And so Zechariah hears Gabriel say, don't be afraid. But then the second thing says, your prayer has been answered. What prayer? Well, what did we learn already? That Zechariah and Elizabeth are old and they have no children. I had the opportunity a few years ago to lead a short-term trip uh, to New York City. And on a particular evening, we went to the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And each week, they have a, a weekly prayer service. And their pastor, Jim Simbola, was talking with the church about prayer and its value and its power. And he made this statement that's just always stuck in my head. He made the statement that no prayer ever dies. And I remember the first time I read this passage in preparation for today, when I got to this part, and Gabriel said to Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. That's the first thing that came to my mind. It's probably reasonable that we could assume that Zechariah's quit praying that prayer. There's no real indication from the rest of the story as we go through it that Zechariah is actively continuing this prayer. He's fully aware of his age. He's fully aware of the age of his wife. Most likely, this is a prayer that was prayed numerous times for years, perhaps decades, by Zechariah and Elizabeth, that God would answer their prayer. Most likely one they've given up on, and yet here, at an advanced age, Gabriel drops in the story and says, the Lord sent me to tell you two things. Don't be afraid, and your wife's going to have a son. Well, this son, spoiler alert, will grow up to be John the Baptist. Uh, and there's some other stories that we'll hear about John the Baptist as we go through this gospel series. But I just want to look at what we're told right here, what I'm allowed to talk to you about this morning from verses 14 to 17. It says this, Gabriel says about John, he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John, the name that means the Lord is gracious, is given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. There's a prophecy that he'll lead a mighty revival. In fact, he'll become the final Old Testament prophet, the last one that will declare that the Lord is in fact coming, that there is one who will come on their behalf. He'll be given a ministry. He'll lead a mighty revival. It says that the Holy Spirit will be in him before he's even born, something that to this point in history would have seemed pretty foreign. But he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'd be the answer to the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth. But he wouldn't just be the, prayer, the answer to the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's leave the present for a minute and go back to the past. Remember, there's two narratives that are running here. It's Zechariah and Elizabeth and their personal one. There's a bigger one about Israel, and there's still that issue of 400 years of silence. Well, in verse 17, as Gabriel is telling Zechariah about this son that he will have, he uses these words to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. Why does that matter? Because right before these 400 years of silence happen, at the end of Malachi, 
in the very last two verses, Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, the very last two verses of the very last chapter of the very last book of the very last thing Israel would have heard, Malachi would have said two things. He's gonna send one. It's gonna come in the power of Elijah. And he would have used these words to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. God's faithfulness in the past being brought into the present. And perhaps Zechariah would have understood both of those things, that God's orchestrating his plan, he's putting his plan in motion, one that he's had all along. You remember from the shadow series, the gospel isn't plan B, this isn't oops, it didn't work out, now what do we do? God's had this plan in place all along. Even in the midst of 400 years of silence for Israel, God knew what was gonna happen. Even in the midst of decades of silence for Zechariah and Elizabeth as they prayed for a son, God's known all along, I have a plan that's in place, I'm faithful I can be trusted. And so John, meaning the Lord is gracious, is a gift, an answer to the prayer of Israel, an answer to the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, it'd be reasonable to think that Zechariah would hear this and his response would be about time or fantastic, I knew you'd, you'd come through for me or whatever. Zechariah instead responds uh, with a really practical, kind of a typical guy response, a real practical lesson for the angel on biology and aging. Zechariah says this to the angel. He asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. What you saw right there was Zechariah with one of the first instances of political correctness, right? See how he mentioned his wife's age in a real subtle way? I'm an old man and she is, she's, she's well along in years, right? Not as young as when I first met her. But he responds when he's told this fantastic news, the answer to his prayers with, how can this be? How can I be sure? I'm old and she's not young, right? So Gabriel responds to him this way. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah would have known the story from Genesis 18 of Abraham and Sarah. This isn't the first time an old couple is met with the presence of the Lord that says, I'm going to do what only I can do. Provide for you a child in the years when you're well past the years where natural biology can do its thing. Zechariah would have heard that and yet he's still filled with doubt and so his punishment really, the response from, from the Lord through Gabriel then is his speech is taken away. And so he's had this experience here uh, but he can't talk about it. Which matters because in verse 21 we are kind of taken back out of that moment in the temple into what's happening. And it says this, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. These folks that would have come to the temple would have known the rhythm well. We show up, takes about this long. Then the priest comes back out. Then we go home or we go out to lunch or whatever the routine was at the temple. They knew what it was. And when the preacher was taking too long or the priest took too long, it upset their schedule, right? They understood that. But Zechariah can't even tell him what's happened. And so what we get is, I think, the first game of charades ever played with perhaps one of the most difficult cards, right? 
you're an old man, a priest, and an angel appears and says your not-so-young wife's going to have a kid. Go, right? Like, pass. I just, I'm done. I hate charades. I'm not playing. Never like this game, right? But Zechariah is a better man than I, and so it says when he came out, he could not speak to them. Verse 22, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. Again, he won't be able to speak until John, his son, is born. So if that really sets up God's faithfulness in the past, moving to God's faithfulness in the present, then it just leaves us with the third, which is God's faithfulness in the future. Verse 23 says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. Zechariah gets off work. And I can kind of uh, imagine in my mind a couple of ways this scenario plays out when he gets home, right? Punches the old temple time clock, jumps in his... 22 AD Chevy Silverado and drives home, pulls into the driveway, opens the door. Elizabeth says, honey, how was work? He doesn't talk, you know, typical guy. It's like, oh, we're not talking now, you know? It's like, I can't, I can't. You sick? What is it, right? Perhaps that's how it plays out. Or perhaps Zechariah responds like a lot of us would if our prayer has been answered. Maybe his initial response wasn't exactly perfect. But I kind of imagine that scenario of punching out, jumping in a vehicle, careening home, and I don't think Zechariah opened the door. I'm going to guess he probably burst through it. And when his eyes met with his wife's across that living room, I think she knew, I don't think this was a typical day at work. He still can't talk though, right? Like he's got a few things to say. Hey, honey, how was work? Eh, There's nothing big. Is that an angel show up? Oh, you're going to have a kid, by the way. Did I throw that? I forget to tell you that. There's some things to say. These are no words. But verse 24 makes it evident that uh, he's able to deliver the message because it says, after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. And I want us to listen to what Elizabeth says in her response to all this. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. If you remember back to last week when Mark talked about the genealogy and the rare occurrences where women's stories would play out or be listed, it was a male-predominant society. It was one where having a son and passing on land rights mattered. It was one where having a son that could carry the family name forward mattered. And for all of these years, Elizabeth hasn't been able to provide that for Zachariah. At least that seems to be how it feels for her. And this issue, this, this challenge of childlessness, it's not an easy one. It's not uh, one that's just simply meant to be glossed over to say, perhaps your story works out perfect just like Elizabeth's. And so I want to invite us to consider and reflect on this for a minute but from a different perspective, not, not one of American culture. We have a family, Todd and Angela Owen and their kids that our church has supported for almost two decades that work in Papua New Guinea. They work in Bible translation, and it dawned on me as I was preparing for this that right now, just a couple of weeks ago, they wrapped up the translation of Luke chapter one through four. Right now, their work is to bring this gospel that we are studying into the native tongue of the people that they serve in Papua New Guinea. 
And so I reached out to Todd and just said, what can you tell me about Luke chapter one, verses five through 25? What would you preach? What did you learn? How does it fit? And I wanna read for you his response. And I'll, I'll preface it with this. Uh, sometimes cultural traditions are a little bit different than ours. This, this traditional sound probably more like ancient Israel than it will modern U.S. Uh, but I don't want us to get caught or tripped up by a cultural difference. Just kind of keep an open mind about that, realizing different cultures are, are different. It doesn't make it right or wrong. But I want you to listen to the, the truth that Todd shares at the end. Todd writes this. So today the Somalgaria... This is the people that he's translating scripture for. Still practice bride price traditions. Their tradition, ironically, is sort of the installment plan. Gifts and blessings are given early in the marriage, but the real bride price ceremony is not held until the couple has had several children or finished having children. And it is at this point that the bride's worth is evaluated. Does she work hard? Is she, a product, is she productive in childbearing? How many sons has she given? Is she respectful of her husband. Barrenness is a grounds for termination of the marriage as land rights are passed from father to son. The marriage commitment is secondary to the ability to control the passing on of land to the next generation. There is tremendous pressure on the woman in the relationship to perform in all these areas. Hence, there is incredible shame if she is unable. Most Garia women will be able to identify with Elizabeth's sense of shame in being barren, albeit for slightly different reasons. All the same, I am hopeful, and this is what I want us to hear. All the same, I am hopeful that they will recognize God's overwhelming grace and tenderness towards them when they don't measure up to their society's expectations. God's overwhelming grace and tenderness, perhaps you could call it his faithfulness, in the past, into the present, and into the future. There's a lot of different reasons why we feel shame and disgrace. Some are things that are decisions that we've made. Some are decisions that we were pretty powerless about. And yet the emotion is really the same. And often it leads us either into a place of bitterness or perhaps just separation from who God is. And so as we wrestle through, what does this passage mean? neat Old Testament story here that lands in the book of Luke, but what does it mean for us? How do we respond to a story like this? I want to start with simply this. Can I just point out the difference between Zechariah and Elizabeth's response to the same news? You remember Zechariah's in verse 18. He started with a question. How can I be sure of this? And look at verse 25, how Elizabeth responds. The Lord... The Lord has done this for me. No matter what circumstance or situation we might find ourselves in, we are often tempted to ask questions that put us as the person in control or power. What am I supposed to do with this? How can I believe this? What, how am I supposed to fix this? And yet Elizabeth gives us this beautiful glimpse into this response that just says, the Lord has done this for me. Responds with an act of faith to say, even in this most difficult of things, the Lord has been gracious to me. In just a minute, we get to sing one of my favorite songs. It's one of the perks uh, to the Sundays you preach is they'll ask you, hey, is there any songs you think would fit with your sermon? You can say, well, we can sing my favorite one. So in just a moment, we're gonna sing the words to an old hymn, It Is Well. 
I don't know if you know the background of the story. Maybe you can make a note in your journal just to look that up later. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. It was written by a man by the name of Horatio Spafford, and it was written in the midst of a season of intense and immense loss. And yet the words are just laced with hope and the faithfulness of God. He says, no matter what happens, whether peace like a river attendeth my way or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say, it's well with my soul. There's this confidence in who God is, even in the midst of our deepest pain. And perhaps what we learn from Elizabeth, perhaps the, the thing that we need to walk away from here this morning knowing is this. And I don't mean to say this in a trivial or dismissal way. Please, please don't hear that. But perhaps our moments of deepest pain and shame and disgrace are actually moments that God redeems into the most powerful part of our testimony. It's true for me. It's true for Zachariah and Elizabeth that there are moments of our story that we don't necessarily want to tell and yet there are these moments where God's grace intervenes in a more powerful way than we could have ever imagined. Perhaps it's just the response to say the only reason I know I got through that is because the Lord was with me. Perhaps on the other side, it is completely different. The Zachariah and Elizabeth that had quit praying for a son are different people over here when he arrives. And not every story ends up that way. I understand that. But perhaps the challenge for us this morning is to put our faith and confidence in a God who is faithful. Maybe it's simply to be encouraged and reminded as we walk out of here that our God is faithful, that he does love us and that he does have a plan for our lives. Maybe we need to be challenged to look at our own lives and go, what is it that causes me to not believe in the faithfulness of God? Is it my past? Is it something I won't let go that I don't think God can handle? Is it the present? Is it this moment right now that just has you centered and stuck and you're not sure which way to get any sort of traction? Is it the future? An uncertainty that God surely couldn't care about my story. But he does because God's the author of every story. Not just the big ones about nations and about cries to end 400 years of silence, but the personal ones of Zechariah and Elizabeth, of you, of me. God hears our prayers. He cares. God is the author of every story. And so in just a moment, we get to respond. And my prayer for these next few moments is this, that we as a church, we as individuals, if God is truly our rock and if we believe that he is faithful and we know that he's redeemed some of our most difficult moments into the most beautiful and powerful parts of our testimony, that we would declare that confidence back to him, that we would worship and it would really truly be well with our soul. And if you doubt, if you don't believe it, if it just seems too ridiculous, too far-fetched, too impossible that God could possibly care about your story or redeem it or turn anything about it into something good, that the truth of these words would settle in your heart as well. Maybe you need to come talk to one of us at the prayer center or maybe you need to grab somebody you came to church with today and say, I wanna believe that God is faithful, that he's powerful, that he's bigger than all of these things. 
God's the author of every story. He's had a plan all along. He's been faithful in the past. He's faithful in the present. He'll be faithful in the future. God is the author of every story. His plans never fail. He is faithful. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.